1: To sat talk radio this week we're going biblical but with a strong revisionist bent the idea that a man called Jesus Christ born of a virgin performer of miracles betrayed and crucified and declared to be the son of God actually existed during the Roman Empire in the area of modern-day Palestine is a subject of long and often heated debate historians and archaeologists are adamant that there is no historical evidence for the existence of such a person. Christians, on the other hand, just know in their hearts that Jesus lived and died to take away their sins or debts, as the case may be. So what's the deal? Well, as you're going to find out, the skinny is that, while it isn't exactly widely known, to say the least, that there's evidence, there is evidence to suggest that the details of the life of Jesus Christ were in fact pinched from another famous JC of the same era. So seriously, who's on first here? Joining us, joining me this week, are the usual uh, usual suspects, Jason, Neil, and Pierre, and also author and historian, Laura knight So Laura, getting back to that uh, kind of general question there, seriously, who's on first here?
0: Aha! Well, you've asked a question that
1: kind of is going to be answered later on.
0: Well, yeah, because I I think I would rather describe how I came to the idea and then found some confirmation. And describing how I got to the idea is going to take a little bit of time, but I can assure you it's pretty interesting, so it's not going to be boring. But <clears throat> what I also had planned to do, tonight was talk about a few other things, including one of my own recent little discoveries during the course of doing the research for the next volume of Secret History, and it all kind of ties in together, but even before that, I want to tell everybody some things about history, the practice of history, um, how history is done, how it's been done, and some of the things that we're up against when we try to read sources about history or historians interpreting those sources. Obviously, everything that happens around us on a daily basis in the political sphere and the social sphere is history in the making. If you think about it, The old saying, the victors write the history, is never more true than when it's being written as you experience it or live it or observe it on a daily basis, assuming you're paying attention. For example, what will historians of the future have to say about the assassination of John Kennedy, for example? There is the official version, and then there are all of the uh, works by alternative historians, or what they call conspiracy theorists, and I'm going to say something about that in a second, that completely contradict the official version. What will survive in the future? And this is kind of the dilemma that we're looking at here in any discussion about Jesus or any other famous person in history. What if, in the future... The uh, powers that be decide that it's uh, very, very um, uh, uh, anti-political or it's uh, anti-stability of the society for any of these books about the assassination of John Kennedy being a conspiracy by the government to continue to exist. And they launch a campaign for house-to-house searches, library searches, you know, have people turn each other in. Uh, for possessing such books, and they eliminate all of the books about any other idea concerning the assassination of John Kennedy other than the established um, authoritarian position. What, then, will future historians have to work with? That's an interesting question, isn't it? The same could be said about the events on uh, 9-11-2001 suppose at some point it's decided that conspiracy theorists are stirring up the population uh, against their constituted authorities. And all of the individuals who do not buy into the party line or have written books or articles or whatnot are rounded up, gotten rid of, or made to swear some kind of oath of allegiance – and their books are searched out, burned, destroyed. What then will future historians say about the events of 9-11? The fact is that those kinds of things appear to have happened in the past regarding our real history, and I'm going to show you a piece of evidence that I have found that this is the case. Just a quick note. This rewrite.
2: Rewriting of history according to the victors is obvious when we think about the example you gave. It works right now in real time in a uniform material world. Imagine that in between you have major disruptions that destroy most of the witness, most of the books, most of the old tradition. This way, rewriting is even more easily performed.
3: But it's even worse, because, I mean, of course, when we're talking about this, what are are historians going to think 2,000 years from now about 9-11? Books, eh, without a lot of care, they they don't have a very long life. I mean, paper can tend to rot, get damp or whatever it is, and colors fading, fades, anything. So someone would have to really, really work hard to preserve a book across that amount of time. The way that texts in the past have survived is that People copied them to new parchments and new scrolls and new books, and uh these people obviously sometimes got really bored with whatever the person was saying and then tried to summarize it so i mean again, there's that like what how will people summarize the assassination of j f k and what about copying errors and copying errors translation errors
0: what about translation evolution of language
3: yeah all
0: of these all of these things come into play in the transmission of history. So we are faced with revision as it happens, revision after the fact, uh, destruction that is unplanned and unforeseen, uh, destruction that is deliberate, and, of course, if you have a discontinuity in history, such as a, a period of extreme stress on the planet when... Uh, The population is greatly reduced, Uh, you know, institutions fail, infrastructure fails, Uh, the death rate is is like 80 to 90 percent. These events have happened in in the last 2,000 years, by the way. Um, And then you have very few people left who are literate, and the ones who are left are basically free to do what they wish with whatever uh, manuscripts are available. So those are all the problems um, that face the historian. But,
1: I, I was going to say something there, which was just that it it wouldn't be so bad that that kind of thing happened, uh, particularly the destruction, you know, kind of unforeseen destruction, as, you know, cosmic catastrophe or cataclysms or whatever, if all of the lies and twistings that went on at the time were Wiped out with the destruct, with the with the cataclysm, or with you know what I mean. But the real problem is that somehow the lies persist. Yeah, we, well, today we're we're basing our a lot of our history and a lot of our beliefs and values and all that kind of stuff, and our religion is comes from two thousand years ago. That includes all of that revision and changes at the time and all that kind of stuff, and a, 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 most likely a, a cataclysm or two along the way. But still, we're 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 saddled with
0: it yeah and we're convinced or some of us are convinced that it's true well yeah. let me let me uh <clears throat> let me present my two particular examples here uh one of them is another person's discovery uh the second one is my own discovery uh the first first one is what is called the Edward the second conspiracy uh now you probably wonder why I'm bringing up Edward the Second. When we're going to be talking about Jesus ultimately, but bear with me. This is important. I hope that most of you know the story of Edward the Second, but just in case you don't, I'm going to give you a little quick recap. <clears throat> of England. Yeah, Edward the Second, King of England. I grew up knowing the story of Edward the Second because the account of how he died was so horrible it would give anybody a nightmare. He was king of England from 1307 until he was deposed by his wife, Isabella, in 1327. Isabella was the daughter of the king of France, and she was called the she-wolf because after she, or she went off to France where her brother was king and hooked up with Roger de Mortimer, Edward's sworn enemy, who was one of the few people in history who ever escaped from the Tower of London, by the way, Together, they got help from continental nobles, assembled a small army, went back to England, and took over. They did this with almost unanimous support of the people, so obviously, at the time, Isabella and Mortimer were not seen as predators (laughs) or wolves. The next thing they did was they put Edward himself, since they were not quite willing to take the step of committing regicide, that would have been a very bad thing, and it would have set a very bad precedent, And it probably would have excited the people against them because it would have been considered a a sacrilege because the king's person was holy. So they didn't kill him. They put him into custody with some people who were supposed to watch him. He was imprisoned. He had style and comfort. But somewhere along the way, he was allegedly killed. How was he killed and why does this thing stick in my mind? Well, since he was... uh, pretty much a flaming homosexual. The people claimed that he had been killed in a particularly horrendous way that was supposed to be suited to his proclivities. He uh, was killed by having a hot poker, I mean red hot, that had been heated in the fire inserted into his anus and stirred around so that all of his innards would be basically cooked while he was alive. The story said that his screams could be heard all over the countryside, and that's the short version. So a few years later, Isabella and Edward's son, who was the nominal king, who was being guided, and I have that in quotes, by Isabella and Mortimer, was feeling a little bit hostile that his mother's lover had killed his father. Go figure. He got some friends together and they snuck into uh the castle through a an underground passage and confronted Roger de Mortimer, took him prisoner, tried him for murder, treason, whatever, and he too died a most horrible death. On that one you can just think William Wallace in the movie Braveheart. Um Wallace, by the way, was murdered by Edward I, the father of Edward II, and the grandfather of Edward III, so they were keeping the family traditions alive there. Of course, I knew that Edward II was, at the very least, bisexual, even though he and Isabella had several children together his male friends his lovers Piers Gaveston and later Hugh Dispenser, scandalized the country and took over the government this is one of the reasons that the people were not terribly unhappy when isabella and de mortimer came and took over he allowed his lovers to dominate him and use him to use him to enrich themselves at the expense of the entire country so they the two lovers actually come across as complete rapacious psychopaths with uh Edward himself being kind of an innocent victim of his proclivities, which, you know, was not really a sin as far as I'm concerned. But anyway, knowing all of that doesn't make the way Edward died right. And this was actually kind of the key to the puzzle, if you really think about it the fact that he was accused of having been murdered this way, or that Roger de Mortimer was accused of having this done. And that these stories were spread around, and it was these stories that uh, prompted his son to gather his friends to go in and arrest Mortimer and try him for treason and, and execute him in that horrible way. So, that sounds like, you know, the story. That's history, right? Everybody's been teaching that story for, I mean, well, basically since... You know, the 14th century. That's that's history for 600 years. Guess what? It's not true. Oh, it was a fairy story? It was a fairy story.
1: Pretty gruesome one,
0: but yeah. Yeah, it was pretty horrible. <clears throat> and it's only been discovered in recent years that it wasn't true. hmm And this is where the two different types of historiography come into play. You know, there's the historians who write history because they go and interview witnesses and they uh, read other people's histories and write histories based on those histories. And then there's what they call an antiquarian. Antiquarians dig stuff up, go around, take tracings off monuments, collect uh, local lore and stories, uh, legends, myths, they go and they collect coins, they examine coins, they go into archives, and they, I mean, some people get really obsessed. There was one guy, one a pretty, pretty famous historian of the uh, antiquarian variety, who spent every summer of his uh, vacation teaching at a big university in the U.S. in the archives, in the court archives in London, studying financial transactions. And the fact is that it was one of these antiquarian types who solved this interesting little mystery. It seems that there was a letter written by an unimpeachable source, the Italian Bis- Bishop of Vercelli, stating that Edward II actually was helped to escape, went to Italy, became a hermit, and lived the rest of his life in exile. This is called the Fieschi letter. It was discovered in 1878 in Montpellier, France, by a French archivist in an official register dating before 1368. Now, I didn't get a lot of attention until just recently, but it was discovered that far back. The letter has been tested, and it is not a forgery. <coughs> The letter contains accurate details that few people knew at the time and was written long before the accepted accounts of the murder were penned by the propagandists who were out to get Mortimer. Historian Ian Mortimer, who, by the way, is no relation to Roger, following the financial accounts and administrative documents of the reign of Edward III, he's one of these antiquarian-type historians, demonstrates in a book, rather effectively and convincingly, that Edward III probably did receive this letter and that he met with his father in Germany later. This, of course, being after he had executed Mortimer for the supposed murder. And this was the background to certain changes in his behavior and attitude. Edward II, obviously, was content for his son to be king probably because he knew that the whole country had turned against him because of his, quote, vile, unquote, sexual proclivities and his tendency to want to be dominated in any relationship, which is what had resulted in the almost complete collapse of the royal administration while Gaveston and Dispenser were ruling. He also probably realized, and this is just my opinion, he could pursue his urges more discreetly and with less opposition as a private person under the guise of a Hermit, (laughs) that is, in a religious institution.
1: Best place for him? I mean, you lock them through the doors these days.
0: It was important at the time for Edward III to protect the reputation of his mother, Isabella, who, after Mortimer's execution, nearly lost her mind, based on the royal records of the exchequer, because the payments to various types of doctors and so forth, and for her care and her confinement were listed on, in the books. Nobody had a clue for over 600 years. What is remarkable about this is the fact that this letter was found and the truth revealed at all. How much more of our history is exactly like this, concealed, covered up, and the truth never comes out at all. Of course, some um, old school historians who really believe in the mainstream history that we've been listening to for 600 years criticize this conclusion stringently. And they criticize Ian Mortimer's methods because, you know, he's there digging through the records of who was spending what money in the court and what it was being spent for, which is kind of how he found it uh, that uh, Richard or Edward III had spent some money on this trip to Germany. That he had paid some money to this unknown person who it apparently turns out was uh, his father under an assumed name who had come to spend time with him in Germany before going back to his Italian monthly cell. Anyway, if you want to know the details, you can read Ian Mortimer's book, The Greatest Traitor, as well as Alison Weir's book, Isabella, She-Wolf of France, Queen of England. And I think after you read these books, you'll agree that it's time to put a period to that terrible story and acknowledge that people in power do a lot of things that the rest of us don't know about without certain accidents of fate, such as the discovery of the Fischke letter. We have no way whatsoever of knowing what is truth and what is lies. The point of this story is that when studying history, everything can appear on the surface to follow a fairly logical cause-event process, and the history can be powerfully influenced by the propaganda of the times, such as including the story of the horrible murder of Edward II as possibly true. That puts Isabella and Mortimer in a particular light, which it seems obvious now they did not deserve to have cast on them.
3: But served the uh, purposes. It, ser- it served the-, the agenda of the time.
0: It also makes it obvious that even the peoples of the time, or the times, can be influenced by propaganda to act in certain ways that they later learn were not appropriate. Undoubtedly, Edward III, exposed to the horrible rumors about the death of his father, got worked up to the point that he was willing to cause grave psychological damage to his mother and destroy her happiness by arresting her beloved and having him executed. Now, I'm not defending Isabella and Mortimer, because both of them had access to grind in the situation, but the shadow of this event spread over the entire period, and it is difficult to separate the wheat from the chaff when one already has an opinion of how bad they were because they were responsible for such a horrifying act against the person of the lawful king. Isabella and Mortimer obviously did save England from the ravages of the Dispensers, and who knows how history might have played out if the two of them had continued to rule for a bit longer before Edward III came of age. Things may not actually have been that different, except that a truly awful crime against an innocent Mortimer would not have been committed. But then, perhaps the later realization of the fact that he had, in fact, executed an innocent man— A man loved by his mother affected Edward III in a positive way, making him more thoughtful and willing to wait for more data before making decisions. Maybe his realization of his mistake made him a better man and a better king. So when we research history, we have to pay close attention because there are not just two sides to a story. Sometimes there is a truth that hides behind all the smoke and mirrors. And when we come across odd questions dangling threads that make us aware that something isn't right, we need to sit up and take notice. Which leads me to my own little discovery. Yes. 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 And this is going to be a little bit of a recitation of my research. Those of you who've read the last uh, volume of Secret History, Comets in the Horns of Moses... I hope you've read it. If you haven't, maybe some of the things I'm going to say isn't going to make a lot of sense. But the fact is, is I was merrily going along writing, uh, you know, more or less a chronology of the history of the collapse of the Roman Empire, which is actually much later than what I ended up talking about in that book, because I wanted to set the collapse of Rome up as the model, and I wanted to cover it fairly quickly because it was going to be the model of the collapse of the Egyptian Empire, which is where we were going to find Moses. So half the book was going to be the collapse of Rome, and the other half was going to be Moses. And it was going to be one book, and that was going to be it.
4: Uh
0: As some of you know, things just haven't turned out that way, and that's because... I had the experience of finding some of those odd questions dangling as I was going through the research. And the first question came along. I had uh I had written about Constantine and his uh his experience with what was probably a cometary body that caused him to uh convert the empire to Christianity. And this was just prior, you know, by oh what uh Three hundred. No, I'll, yeah, no, I'm talking about how many years before the collapse. So that was in uh, it's three, about two, that was three less twelve. 200. To, yeah, less than two hundred years before everything really went. There. So Christianity was kind of like in in place and growing and manifesting all over the place when everything went kaflui and and, uh, and just to
3: point out, it heralded the, the collapse of the Roman Empire. So yeah, apparently God couldn't save them.
2: For some reference, here were talking about the. Timeline roughly for the collapse of the Western Roman Empire, circa 590
0: AD. Yeah. So the thing was, there I was going along through this chronology, and what I was trying to do was, I was trying to find uh, what the chroniclers of you know of the time had to say about anything, and uh, you know, because it seemed to me that. Christianity was a religion that grew up and became and replaced the old ways at a time of climate and environmental collapse, which appears to have been the same thing that was happening uh, during the 18th Dynasty in Egypt. Everybody, everyone knows, I guess, that around 1600 BC, the volcano Terra erupted and blew, uh, blew basically the Mediterranean civilization to bits along with other things that were going on. uh, It's a little harder to find out exactly what happened then if you don't have a model. But anyhow, there was uh, a change of religion at that time too. So it seemed to me that when there's environmental stress, when there is uh, cometary activity in the sky, you know, people start thinking about God and it's very easy to change religions, you know. And in a certain sense, it's kind of like what happened on 9-11. I don't want to the dead horse here, but you know there was something that happened kind of in the sky, caused a whole lot of stress for a lot of people, thanks to the efforts of the mainstream media and everybody was converted to the belief that nineteen uh Arab terrorists guided by uh some poor guy on a dialysis machine in a in a cave in Afghanistan or Tora Bora wherever the heck he was you know, overcame the defenses of the greatest nation on earth, you know. I mean, that's that's kind of a pretty wild belief, don't you think? Well, anyway, it's
3: ridiculous when you put it that way.
0: Yeah. So the thing is, is that <clears throat> there I was going along, and I was looking at these things, and then I thought I would, well, I'm just going to back up just a little bit, and, uh, you know, I'm just going to make this really complete. So I was looking at all of the... Uh, historians of the period and there's quite a list of them quite a list of chronicles of the period prior to and more or less during the collapse for example there's Zachariah Retor who wrote from 465-553 to 553. John Malalas 491-578 Cassiodorus 485-585 John Lydus, John Malalas Procopius of Caesarea Jordanes John of Ephesus pseudo Zachariah, Theophanes of Byzantium, Agathius, Evagrius Scholasticus, and Menander Protector. The Chronicon Paschal, which was kind of like a compilation of all of the other historians, was put out you know, between 600 and 627. Then there's the Zuckman Chronicle, which came out so probably no later than 775. It, too, is a, a compilation of all these previous historians. There's Dionysius of Telmari. Eight eighteen to eight forty five. These are getting late, but they are chroniclers who compiled from the ancient historians. Constantine Porphyrogenitus, who was, by the way, the Roman emperor. And then there's a book called the Suda, which has uh, excerpts and little uh, synopses of all the manuscripts that, uh, that Porphyrogenitus had in the library. And and then there's Michael the Syrian, who was much much later, but he preserved some excerpts that none of the others preserved. Now, all of these chroniclers belong to the Western or the Eastern Empire, Constantinople, because, of course, after Constantine had his vision and after he had certain experiences in Rome, he decided to go live in Constantinople. That's how this history is told. One wonders, of course, if he decided to go live in Constantinople because this cometary impact that, by the way, has been more or less confirmed for the northern part of Italy at the time, uh, made the weather or the environment in Italy uh, a little less salubrious than one might have wished. When, in other words, you know, were, were things falling apart, things going haywire already when Constantine moved to the capital of the empire? Yeah, we have the history that we're told, but as we've just seen from the history of Edward the II or the second, it's not always so cut and dry. There's a lot of things that get changed around. But in any event, oh, you want to say something to Pierre?
2: No, just wanted to Yeah. To, to bring some uh, yes. discussion and uh so it's. uh
0: I don't want discussion. I want to <laughs> I want to talk. <laughs>
2: To bring some some life in the in the account
0: So <coughs> okay, so give
2: some variety And okay, some more some life. life in the account and uh one strange tendency among those chroniclers, Roman chroniclers is that they, they tended to all stop their activity around Europe, yeah well,
0: just wait till I get to that, just wait till I get to that you're just it's just back off, buddy
2: back <laughs> I'm going to be quiet now <laughs>
0: <laughs> you're going to give it all away. I got to get the bills up here. Okay. <laughs> so anyway, as I said, all of these historians. Well, you know, Pierre's allowed to have a little bit of leeway here because he's done all the translations for me from uh, Michael the Syrian. Apparently, Michael the Syrian does not exist in English, so you have to get it. And, and of course, none of us speak Syrian, ancient Syrian or old Syrian, so we have to refer to a French translation of the old Syrian, which he then translates into English for me so I can see what Michael the Syrian had to say. But in any event, what happened was I was searching through all of these um, historians, their works, which I had to obtain, by hand, reading each one, and I was entering in the data in a table year by year. When an event came up, I would enter it in with, a, you know, I had like a table with a one column for the year, and then the rest with a, a a cell where I put the information in. Basically a chronicle sort of arrangement. And here you we were listing, you were listing cataclysm. What I was looking for were evidences, bits of evidence for what was going on in the environment in particular. I wasn't interested so much in in political events though in some cases i was including them because it struck me that really outrageous political events you know might have been inspired by the atmospheric or environmental events so i was listing uh and i'll give you an idea of the kinds of things because i have a little list here uh for example in the seventh year of King, blah, 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 on the eighth of the year, blah, 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 torrential downpours in the month of January, flashes of lightning, heavy claps of thunder. Uh, streams which run into the latter were so swollen they rose above flood level, the river, lights in the skies. Some said they saw the heavens aflame. The whole sky seemed to catch fire. There appeared at midnight a multitude of rays, portents appeared, rays of light were seen in the northern sky, flashes of light, Uh, blood rained from a cloud falling on the clothes of a number of people, portents, homes of people, vessels were discovered inscribed with unknown characters, Um, two centers of light, objects of brilliance, the walls of the city collapsed, Uh, The portents appeared a second time this year. An earthquake. Uh, People suffered from a terrible epidemic. Great numbers of them carried off. whole series of malignant diseases. Serious outbreak of plague. Um, I'm just flipping through this, but this is the kind of stuff. A sound as of trees crashing to the ground was heard throughout the whole region, but it can hardly have been a tree, for it was audible for 50 miles. Rays of light towards the north again. A uh, terrible storm battered down the vines and crops. The city was burned by a great conf- conflagration. Two islands in the sea were consumed by fire which fell from the sky. They burned for seven whole days. Villages were burned by fire sent from heaven. It took so swift a hole that homesteads and threshing floors were still <coughs> spread out, reduced to ashes. That sort of thing. So you see what I was looking for. Now, historians... Of these ancient chronicles have up to this very day considered those kinds of things as hyperbole there the they they will say that there was a religious battle taking place, and each side was using this kind of ammunition against the other. The pagans were saying uh there was a fire you know they would write that there was a fire from heaven and and the church was destroyed." And uh, that's proof that the Christians are bad. And then the Christians would write, uh, "Well, there was an earthquake and the city was destroyed, and that's proof that the pagans are bad, or that you know God is testing us to see if we can stay faithful, and so on and so forth." So, the historians tend to say that these kind of things are either exaggerated, made up, misinterpreted, or what they're are they're using metaphors like uh, God smote the city. Instead of the historian, the chronicler, actually meaning that the city got smitten in some way.
3: He didn't know, know how, and so attributed it to God.
0: Yeah, he uh, he just attributed it t- to God, or or that the, you know, it could have been an economic collapse, and that was God smiting the city. I mean, they, they actually will argue these kinds of points. But I was taking this slightly different approach. I was going to accept these kinds of things as data to work with, which is why I was collecting it and entering it in my table.
2: And there were very good reasons to take it as objective uh, uh, facts, because A, sometimes you have the account of the same event from two independent sources. They don't know each other and they tell the same story. B, your archaeological evidence, in some cases of major disruption. And C, Those very same chroniclers that are accused of exaggerating actual events, meanwhile, they were giving very accurate, detailed, and objective account of political life,
0: which the historians do use when it's yeah they they believe that, but then exclude the other. And there's another there's another factor. How many did you have? You had three Three. there. Okay, number four is the fact that uh, uh, Victor Kleeb. Mike Bailey, uh, the other Bailey, and several astronomers have determined that there have been periods of very active cometary flux in and around our planet with many impacts and or overhead explosions. And there are many, many other astronomers who are Uh, collecting evidence that proves that this is the case. You know, impacts of the Tunguska type, only bigger and meaner. Impacts of the type that struck Russia in February of this year, only bigger and meaner. And I hope that everybody has watched the videos on that one, which curiously occurred three days after the release of my Last volume:
3: Comets and the Hordes of Moses, which, which you can get on Amazon. Do we want to hear it? Format candle?
0: Yeah, I think I, we should hear the, her- the yeah. Arrow of
3: Zeus. Yeah. Or... Yeah.
0: Okay, we're gonna hear the Thunderbolts of Zeus. This is yeah, what those thunderbolts people thunderbolts. were hearing, only way worse. Minus the dog. <laughs>
3: Yeah, that's the the crazy thing. Now, imagine that you live two thousand years ago, or even like one thousand five hundred years ago. You have no experience of the concept of a missile. You see this bright thing streaming across the sky. There's there's some videos of it where there's like this streamer. You see explosions. You hear bright, that bright flashes. You know that it's not lightning. It didn't sound like lightning or thunder. You know that the flashes aren't anything like that. There's no rain clouds or anything like that. What are you going to ascribe that to? You you don't know about missiles. You don't know about bombs or the anything like this. You're going to call it what? The thunderbolt of Zeus, the the wrath of God. And if it destroys some building near you, what else could you say? I mean something came down for which you have no concept of and blew up a building or set fire to everything. I yeah. mean what, what well, else I, are you going to well,
1: say? I, I, well, depending on how regular those kind of things were… You would kind of have hoped that after a few occasions that they would realize that they are rocks falling from the sky, at least for a while, and someone smart enough to say, listen, this is rocks falling from the sky from whatever
0: well, source. Actually, actually, there was one who did say that, and it was the teacher of Socrates back in, uh, what, yeah. 380, uh, wasn't it 380, 380 BC or whatever? Yeah, yeah and, but of course the potential. And, and he was, he was either put to death or driven to suicide yeah. or something because he said rocks fall from the sky and then there was one that buried a city at Aegis and, yeah. and and I may have the date wrong so y'all don't hold me to dates here of course
1: the potential for that to be spun into you know, uh, the, the wrath of God is obviously very very present
3: but now. look at how the government today uses the fear of terrorists Right? would the individuals at that time some opportunistic priest priestly caste or anyone would want to use the fear it caused to make some sort of changes or reforms? I mean, would they capitalize on it? Therefore, encourage in the interpretation. It's the wrath of God because you believe in so-and-so and we're not in power. Especially, especially you know, if In God, other words, I mean, your God,
0: our God is red hot. Your God ain't diddly squat. Well,
1: especially if God had been associated uh, or was associated for a long time with the emperor or the king or the ruling elite. I mean, this is not just God's wrath, but my wrath, you know? I mean, we co opted. At, at this time, areas. they were not totally naive
2: about what was happening in the yeah. sky in 500 AD. These the Chinese had established a classification of comets, about a dozen different kinds of comets. Between 540 and 590 AD, chroniclers.
0: But the reported comets were different 12- from things that entered the atmosphere and exploded,
1: see? Could they not be? If a comet was seen, and
0: then, well, that often happened. A comet was seen, and then fragments came, and you know, of course, the comet was a god.
2: Yeah, Uh, and uh, so there is specific mention of comets, and um, but twelve times between five forty and five ninety. But wrath of God. It may be a naive take on what's going on in the sky. It may be also the awareness of the what we call the. Mandate of Heaven, that we mentioned previously, at this time there was a, a deep sense that political affairs and cosmic events were correlated. Michael Lutheran, in his uh, uh, chronicles, presents the pages of his book the following way. He has two paragraphs, left column, right column. And on the left column he has the cosmic events, the natural phenomenon, and on the right he has the political events. keep drawing. Correlation between political behavior, in particular, po- political, uh, abuses committed by the leaders, and uh, so, catastrophes. So what, so what so you're saying that God's even, wrath is, is not necessarily a, a naive take on it. It might be an understanding that there is a correlation. Exactly. God yeah. is an Yeah.
3: Or the universe. That they're not mutually exclusive. That which is why Michael, Michael the Syrian no. hasn't been translated into English. But but look at right now. I mean, there's been a rash of disasters all over the world. Uh, flooding and crop failures and all this different stuff and these sort of signs and portents and the government and what is the government doing right now? The, right? the authorities
0: they're trying to cast all of that activity onto more natural. Uh, I mean, right, for I'll example, humans. You know chemtrails, global warming, it's all humans' fault. It's either humans doing chemtrails is changing the weather and causing these things, or they're doing geoengineering causing earthquakes. The government is in control. I mean, well, it's kind of Let like me ask exactly you this
1: question. It's, it's kind of the, exactly the opposite of what was going on then. You know, yeah. today when these kind of things are happening, they're go, they are and probably will try to ascribe it all to either human hu, causes. human causes, whereas in the past it was all celestial and right. heavenly, divine but causes. What
3: would Michael the Syrian write about a um, what was it? It was a two-mile-wide uh, tornado mm-hmm. ripping through and destroying houses. And, and what, what would he say about what was and look at the political on?
0: events that were going on at the same time? Look at the political events that are going on at the same time that any of the events that uh, you know the
3: the, the planetary the yeah. events,
2: yeah. yeah. And uh, just one of the fundamental differences between now the cover-up now and the take on it in uh, the sixth century A.D. Is that there, was, there has been a major paradigm shift. The cosmogony is different. And in the past, there were probably science fields closer is to the God. truth than we are now with the advance of scientism, uniformitarism, mechanistic universe, clockwork model of the universe where human activity is totally decorrelated from cosmic events. It opens the door to the cover up we are hearing now, where all this manifestation of fundamental cosmic change are covered up as man-made, unrelated, harmless events. Yeah. And it's just the opposite. It's related, it's cosmically induced, and it's not harmless at all. So the
1: problem, the problem there is you could think that in the past people not knowing the real source, let's say that there were comets or there were rocks falling from the sky is kind of primitive but actually probably people back then were better off in a way than, than we are today in, in, the, in the current system because at least then if they believed that rocks falling from the sky was somehow associated with corrupt leadership and they, and they got rid of the king on the basis of that, at least there was a chance for some, some people power and some, some positive change to, to be affected. But today, nobody's going to blame the government for anything that's going on, even if that is the real cause, if there is some correlation between the corruption going on today and cosmic catastrophe or or brewing cosmic catastrophe, no one's going to go and cut off the head of whoever or attack the elite on the basis of that. So we're actually in a worse position than people back then. Nobody's
2: blaming now. I think we might reach a point where the cover-up would be difficult to, uh, maintain. to maintain because human beings, despite all this indoctrination, will realize they are facing events that are major, that are harmful, that are dangerous and that have such a magnitude that it's not man-made, and therefore it cannot be man-controlled.
0: And when that happens...
2: The king is naked.
0: The king is naked. Mm -hmm. Okay, so speaking of that, let's go and look at some of the things that I compiled from my collection of chroniclers. There was quite a little list of them. Now, remember, this is the Eastern Roman Empire. Uh, Remember that, like, in 410 A.D., Supposedly the barbarians came along and invaded the Western Roman Empire, they sacked Rome, and that was kind of the almost the last you hear about anything going on in the Western Empire. Uh it's not entirely the last, but for the all intents and purposes as far as, you know, the empire is concerned, that was kind of the last. So, essentially there was 100 years from the time of uh Constantine and his comet until you hear nothing further from the Western Empire. It, it basically has collapsed. And the only thing that's really left going on is the Eastern Empire, where the the new capital of Rome has been moved by Constantine, and the uh, Roman emperors continue to exist, although they're no longer in Rome. So here are what the chroniclers, t- and these are really short versions, really short. I'm not even going to uh, describe all of the details, just, you know, hit the high spots. In the year 431, there was comet, grasshoppers, earthquake the 7th of April and the 6th of July. Fire fell on Constantinople. 450 to 457, there's an earthquake in Tripoli. 457, Constantinople again. Fire and ash fell from the sky. There was a huge earthquake at Cyzicus. 474, an earthquake in Thrace. 491, eclipse of the sun, Plague of grasshoppers, 498, earthquake, Nicopolis, springs of a barn stopped flowing, the river Euphrates stopped its flow on the same day, an earthquake, Nicopolis was destroyed, a plague of grasshoppers, fire on the north side of the sky, 500, eclipse, ash falling from the sky, Uh, the walls of Edessa collapsed, November, there were signs in the sky, January signs in the sky, 501, famine, locusts, plague, 502, earthquake, Ptolemaeus, Tyre, and Sidon. Fire in the northern quarter of the sky. Earthquake in Neo-Cesarea. 503, there was a sign like a spear visible in the sky. 504, an earthquake in Rhodes. 505, there was a massive killing of people, not explained in Persian territory. 518, on the 9th of July, a comet. A great spear in the sky. 521, Dyrrachium, the wrath of God fell. That's all it said.
1: But that's pretty suggestive. Sounds pretty impressive. In uh,
0: 522, Anazarbos, calamity from the wrath of God, another wrath of God. 524, Edessa was flooded, and this was reported by John Malala, Pseudo Zechariah, Zekman, Procopius, and Michael the Syrian. 521 was the great Antioch earthquake. Uh, 528, earthquake, earthquake. Antioch earthquake, 29th of November, so there was another one. 529, Amasia and Pontus, wrath of God fell. Can I make one, one
3: small point Yeah. this? I mean, this is not like they had the internet, you know, where you can read about it. Oh, there was like a 2.5 earthquake in such and such a place. Just imagine how big such a thing would have had to been, that somebody would have had to travel over to some other place and say, oh, by the way, there was an earthquake, and it would have been really big news. So it's not like we're talking like you know two point. These, these are city
0: destroying earthquakes, <laughs> by the way. I'm tell. I told you that I'm just giving you the short version. These were city destroying earthquakes, nation destroying plagues of grasshoppers. Yeah. Uh, city destroying floods. This information got to these people because of the people who are fleeing the area, the survivors, <laughs> basically. In 529, the wrath of God fell. There was an earthquake in Corinth. The Euphrates was obstructed. There was a flood. In five thirty there was a great star in the western region. Five thirty one, Anazarbos, again, the metropolis of Cilicia, overthrown, its fourth collapse. It was specified in the chronicle that it was the fourth time it had been destroyed in you know, in a in a fairly short period of time. Five thirty two, there was the Nike rebellion under the reign of Justinian, and there was a great shower of stars reported. There was an earthquake in Constantinople and an earthquake in Antioch. In 535, there was the biggest volcanic eruption of the Holocene era, according to David Key. But I don't think that that's necessarily the case because he was citing uh, the Chinese Chronicle, which reported that there was a strange double roll of thunder in February coming from the southwest. Okay, coming from the southwest would be in the direction of, you know, since it's coming from China, uh, just imagine the direction. Uh, He also says that there was an eruption of Krakatoa at this time, uh, which he derives from an eyewitness account from a medieval manuscript. There is tree ring evidence from Siberia indicating that this year began a 10-year period of the worst climate conditions experienced for almost 2,000 years the year 536 the sun seems to have lost its light and appears of a bluish color for almost a whole year uh in china they reported the stars were lost from view for 3 months a failure of bread in the year 536 so and there it, was there was a lot of stuff there was a lot of stuff yeah And this comes from the Annals of Ulster, the Annals of Ennisfallen, Michael the Syrian, the Anonymous Syriac Chronicler, the Zuckman Chronicle, John Leidos writing from Constantinople, and Michael the Syrian extracting from John of Ephesus. And, of course, uh, I found that there was a drought in Peru, which affected the mochi culture. And then the pestilence began, according to Procopius. Yes. We're getting that, there. It's, yeah, we're it's getting, getting He's growing up. We're getting <sighs> there. I mean, we've actually 50, bypassed. 50, year,
2: Fifty years to go. <laughs>
0: we've bypassed. In 537, seven, just one year after, and it could have been the same year, because sometimes these years are just a little bit iffy, the Battle of Kamlan. According to Mike Bailey, this was a mythical representation of comets in the sky and cometary bombardment. There was also a drought in Mecca, according to the 8th and 9th century Arab historians. In 538, Pompeopolis, there was an earthquake in the 11th year of Justinian. A great and terrible comet appeared. The Great Beirut Earthquake and Tsunami occurred in the same year. Uh, 539, Comet, Fabian, Vesuvius, Antioch Earthquake. 540, Cometary Bombardment, according to the Chinese historical records. Gildas reports Cometary Bombardment up in the northern regions of, uh, uh, you know, of, of the U.K., uh, the, there was a collapse of the great dam of Marib in Yemen in the country of Sheba. So that was that was an interesting year, 540. 541, the plague began in Egypt. There was a comet in Gaul. Earthquake occurred in, in Kaizikos. There was a comet, there was drought, earthquake, earthquake, blah, blah, blah. So I'm getting this from all these different chroniclers. In 542, the sun appeared at noonday. plague began in the east. 543 Plague in Mesopotamia, 544 Plague in Italy, Southern France, Spain, 545 Plague in Persia, Famine, Plague, Mesopotamia, 546, 547 Tremendous Thunder and Lightning, 549 Flood in Cilicia, Plague in the British Territories according to the Bishop of Landoff, 551 another Beirut earthquake and tsunami, earthquake over the Middle East, the sea retreats, John Malalas, 553, Earthquake, Terrible Thunder and Lightning from Chronicle of Theophanes. 554, Earthquake in Constantinople, The Destruction of Baalbek. Now, that's interesting. Wait till you read the next book and hear about Baalbek. That's very, very interesting. 555, there's another earthquake in Constantinople and Plague. 556, Famine, Constantinople, Plague, Ashes Fell from the Sky. 557, More Plague, Earthquakes, Constantinople. 558 Constantinople plague, 559 fire in the harbor, plague and earthquake, Cilicia and Antioch, 562 drought in Constantinople.
3: Yeah, but when you say plague, like in Constantinople, the plague was so bad that they were paying people in gold to get rid of the bodies.
0: Well, yeah, when I like I said, I'm hitting the high spots of these things, but each one of these events was. Absolutely freaking horrendous! So Decimated the death the rate in Constantinople was said to have been something like seventy to eighty percent of the population. Well,
1: Hundreds
3: of thousands. Of all
1: years. of that happened. We just covered about what two hundred years there.
3: Uh, tra- years, we
1: started
0: in the year four thirty one, and we are right now at the year 565. five sixty okay. five. We're
1: barely a hundred years. A so hundred some years, and that, they were the hundred years that were kind of leading up to the fall of the Roman Empire but historians say that the Roman Empire fell because... Uh, barbarians. Barbarians and overextended yeah. armies and stuff like that. And ha- they ignore all, of they ignore all of this massive this. upheaval and say, yeah, you think plague. that might have had something to do with it?
3: Plague, after plague, no. famine, pestilence. So five, <laughs> let me
0: finish here. Now 565, there was another comet. 566, another comet. 570, an earthquake between Edessa and Samosata. plague and famine in Yemen, bombardment of stones from the sky, Five seventy four earthquake, five seventy seven famine and cometary bombardment. And then guess what? Nothing. The records go silent. Even though the
1: records got hit by a comet.
0: Even though it is said that several of these chroniclers lived past this event. Now notice we're at uh we're at five seventy seven. And we've got uh, John Malalas lived to 578, Cassiodorus lived to 585, John Lydus lived to 565, John uh, Procopius lived to 565, Jordanus 560, John of Ephesus 588, uh, Pseudo-Zechariah at least to 588, uh, Agathias 582. Agathias experienced the plague himself, lost most of his family. Evagrius Scholasticus, 593. Menander Protector, 582. So, did all these people just stop writing? No, they didn't. What we are told is that their chronicles cease. And it just happens to be that they all kind of cease in the same three, four, five, maybe 10-year period. Yeah. Around 580... Five seventy-seven. Yeah, the chroniclers. All those
2: chroniclers stop chronicling, and at the same time,
0: a new chronicler...
3: Well,
0: uh, you just you just you just back off here, Pierre. Just back off here because we we gotta we gotta introduce this problem. Yeah, we, we could, properly. Can we get the cliff notes? Cause <laughs> yeah, no, you're not gonna get the cliff notes. I am not going to be thwarted. Okay. <clears throat> In any event, the chronicle picks up in 591. Eclipse of the sun, violent earthquake, plague in Constantinople, blazing drought, uh, acid, small parasitic insects, you know, plague on the land, solar eclipse, drought, blah, blah, blah. So we have from 577, to 591. And I was thinking, well, things must have been peaceful finally, thank God. Everything quieted down. 14 years gap. Yeah. So I'm thinking, well, hallelujah. They were all having a good time then. Everything was, you know. Hunky-dory. Hunky-dory. And then, you know, must have been over. Everything was over. So then I had this brilliant idea. Well, I had read Gregory of Tours many years ago. It's a very entertaining book. I highly recommend it. You'll laugh out loud. Mm-hmm. And I remembered that he wrote about some odd atmospheric and climatological things. that kind of stuck in my head because I thought to myself, well, that's a peculiar thing to, to describe, you know, because this was years before I was even involved in any of this kind of research, but I remembered it. <coughs> so I said, okay, so there is a Western chronicler who survived. I wonder if he observed any of the same things that the Eastern chroniclers observed. Did he observe them maybe from a different perspective? After all, he's over there. He's in tours and they're over here, but things are supposedly happening way up in the sky. If I could get in another witness for some of these events who saw the same things, you know, basically, I'm looking for an independent witness, then that would say that the historians are wrong when they say that these were hyperbole or metaphors, because here's Gregory of Tours seeing the same thing over there from his perspective on the other side of the empire. This was my plan. So I was going to go through Gregory of Tours and extract all of the same kind of information. Now, naturally, since I had been creating this table as I went along year by year, I would—I had all these cells. You know, I would put the year in, and then I would write the event down. And if I came to an event that belonged in a year that I had already covered, I would scroll back up and put it in the proper year. And if I came across an event that I hadn't yet had an event for that year yet, I would, you know, do a create new cell or create new row, and enter it in. So it was just basically using kind of like a, you know, a column uh, table. So now what I proposed to do was to divide my descriptive column in two, and I was going to have the Eastern Chroniclers in one column, and the Western Chronicle, which is Gregory of Tours basically, in the right-hand column. And then, of course, there was going to be this little tiny column all along the left side that gave the year of the event. Now, interestingly, I was in the process of doing income taxes at this particular moment in time. And income taxes, as you know, uh, involves columns of numbers. And you have income on one side and you have outgo on the other side. And interestingly enough, I was also being audited by the French Fisk, who were accusing me of money laundering or getting money from strange places or, uh, you know, doing all kinds of weird things, you know, asking me, where's my yacht? You know, where are my jewels, my furs, my Ferrari, all that kind of stuff, which was really totally ridiculous. So I started thinking about, you know, and they would ask me for proof of Where our funds came from, and I would take them the bank records and say, "Here's the bank records. You know, it shows everything that comes in and goes out. You know, and what goes out, you know, kind of equals what comes in. Sometimes it's a little more than what comes in, so we're, you know, we're kind of on the edge of being broke. You know, but there's nothing weird going on here. And I was thinking about it, and I was thinking, you know, I know that there are people who do that kind of thing, and I was trying to figure out how they did it. If somebody was trying to conceal money, how in the world would they do it? I mean, it didn't seem to me to be possible because, I mean, you have money that comes in and then you have money that goes out. But still, that question was kind of in my mind at the time. And I started with my Gregory of Tours project, and I believed that I was going to have to do a few row entries that there were going to be matching or overlapping or inter uh intermixing entries in my database. Now I want you to draw right now if you've got a piece of paper and a pencil. Draw on this piece of paper and pencil a square box divided into three columns, you know, a little skinny one on on the left for the gears, and then imagine that you know there's all these different rows with events listed in them. And there are the first, uh, how many years? we There's like a, maybe 50 or 60 rows where there are entries in the left column. And not the year column, but in the left column of the Eastern Empire. And then on the right column, we're going to put Gregory of Tours. Okay. So I, like I said, I figured I was going to have to make entries. But I also figured I was going to be able to find matching events where I didn't have to enter a year. But then you know what happened? When I got to 577, when all of the Eastern Chroniclers' works were lost. This is what we're told. Their works were lost. The last part of the Chronicle didn't survive. Uh, We assume he was still alive until this year, but... uh, uh, there doesn't appear to be any further writing. He breaks off in mid sentence, so he must have died. You know, these are the various explanations given for why all of these chronicles cease. And what I started doing was uh, add row, add row, add row, add row, add row. Because remember, I'd stopped at 577, and then the next row began with. 591. So I add row, add row, add row, add row, add row, row, until guess what? I had completely filled in the gap. That is, on the right-hand column where Gregory of Tours entries were being entered, it had completely filled in the gap between 577 and 591. That means that there was now a big empty space in my left-hand column where the chroniclers had stopped writing and then started writing again. And on the right-hand column where Gregory of Tours was, there was his first entry to his last entry, which first entry began where the left-hand column ended, and his last entry ended Where the next column in the left or the next entry in the left column began. And I sat there and I looked at that. And I got this really funny feeling because, of course, you know, I was thinking, well, if you had books that record monetary transactions and you find that kind of gap in a bank record, that everything is going along, blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden, money is no longer appearing for a certain period of time. And then if you were, say, a uh, a FISC agent or an IRS person or some kind of forensic accountant, and you found a bank account that had money going into it that exactly fit into that gap of the first bank account you would say okay somebody is moving money they're hiding money they're transferring money because I was thinking about it in terms of accounting and in in other words it's like where's the money and there's there's the money somebody is somebody has transferred something from somewhere else to another account and I saw Gregory of Tours as being an account and all of these other chronicles were an account and somebody had moved stuff completely from the Eastern Chronicles into Gregory of Tours, and that's where it was. Well, that gave me a really funny feeling because, you know, you don't expect to find something like that when you're searching through history. And the only reason I found it was because of the specific types of information I was looking for. Because certainly there were chronicle accounts of other events, political, religious, et cetera, from other sources that overlapped or that had been created later. For example, our later sources from after 600, 700, they kind of filled in the history of those gap years with religious and political events. So this happened, you know, the church at uh, Ephesus, the bishop this, there was uh, was a martyr, uh, they had a a synod, they agreed on rules, uh, uh, the emperor did this, the emperor did that, so on and so forth, but not a single freaking environmental or celestial event in that whole gap period. And then Gregory of Tours, you know, the period of time that he covers just happens to have exactly all the way through these environmental and celestial events. So I said to myself, self, something is very funny about this picture. So I wrote to a famous historian who is a university professor in uh, the United States, I believe he's at Harvard, I'm not going to give his name, and I said, you know, look at this table, tell me what you think. And he wrote back to me the next day, and he said, I see the problem, I don't know what to tell you. Good luck. He He's probably come across
1: many things like that, you know, that's his attitude, you know, like most historians, it's like, well...
0: I doubt that he's ever come across anything like that. Well... Because nobody, I don't think, I don't think anybody has ever seen so blatant a piece of evidence of the manipulation of historical material, because that is what it is. Somebody took material from the chronicles that they claimed did not exist or had ended, destroyed the copies and put that material into Gregory of Tours. Now, what does that say about Gregory of Tours? Was Gregory of Tours real?
1: Yeah. Well, the
0: question is, why not just
1: destroy it? Why move it and leave it in place?
0: Well, I think the reason was, first of all, Gregory of Tours was the historian of the Franks, supposedly. Mm -hmm. And Gregory of Tours... uh, was supposed to give them a sort of legitimacy. And his chronicle was supposed to be kind of a legitimate one. It was supposed to be written back during this time, this particular period of time when all of these things were going on. And in order to make it look like other chronicles of the time are similar, The events were taken from these other chronicles and scattered through Mm. his. You know, they were given to the right year, but they were scattered through there because they didn't want his chronicle to seem Uh, different from the other kinds of chronicles. Or to have a gap. Yeah. It's better to
1: have something going on than nothing going on, right? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Because all the while, like I said, they've got the other chronicles filled in with... uh, you know religious events, political events, mm. you know this kind of thing, and then they've you know similar things they've got other things that other chronicles written where supposedly absolutely nothing unusual was going on. This person was writing letters, he was having dinners, he was uh doing this, he was doing that and and nothing unusual was going on at all, but the fact that this collection of events, specifically weather-related, flood-related, earthquake, and mostly, most of all, fire in the sky, a fire from heaven, destruction of cities, and so forth, was given to Gregory of Tours, moved to France, when it probably never happened in France that way, because probably by that time, everybody was already dead.
2: Yeah, it, it
0: was a major forgery,
2: in the sense that, concerning the late Roman Empire, the only source available in the Western Empire is Gregory of Tours. So all the legitimacy drawn by the Carolingian, the Franks, the new dynasty, Charlemagne, and and so forth, the sole source of legitimacy, giving the the missing link between the Franks, the Carolingian, and the Roman emperors was Gregory of Tours. So he was, he played a pivotal Political role in the establishment of the ruling dynasty that were going to they took over the, Western they, Europe for
1: centuries, kind of legitimizing their their yeah. history uh, exactly, yeah. and and their root, their origin, yeah, they're, they're, yeah.
0: yeah, and and basically they uh, hooked up with the uh, by marriage with the Empire of Constantinople. And they created a new pope, put him down in Rome, uh, pretty much gave themselves total, complete legitimacy uh, based on the work of Gregory of Tours.
2: And probably this, well, we're getting really off topic here, but probably this rewriting, this the creation of this new story, legitimizing the Franks and the Carolingian was made uh, a few centuries after recovery from this major cataclysm that occurred at the end of the sixth century a d and the rewriting the pockets of survivors developing a a history that suits their agenda probably occurred around uh, 800, 900. so it means for something like at least two centuries in western in what was left from the western empire yeah there was no sign of civilization it was Merely survival.
0: Yeah, it was... For the
2: lucky survivors, for the few survivors. Stone
0: age, I mean, at least. And, you know, of course, according to the official story, Gregory of Tours was a historian. He was a bishop of Tours. He lived during the 6th century AD. He was the only chronicler in the Western Roman Empire for the critical time, the end of the 6th century. So it's not an exaggeration to say that all other historians have based their narratives of the western empire on this single source. And the problem is besides what I discovered by putting searching for and putting all of the environmental and uh cosmic events into a table there are other people who found problems with gregory of tours. You're grinning over there. What's funny?
1: Uh, I just, <clears throat> no carry on.
0: Are we getting messages from the uh, listeners?
1: Well, someone named J.H. Christ sent a message saying, uh, My child, I thought this show was to be about me. <coughs> Get on with it, or my father who art in heaven shall smooth you good. <laughs>
0: JH yeah. Christ, believe me, we're getting there. We're, but we're
3: an hour and twenty minutes into there, and I don't think we've mentioned Caesar or Jesus. <laughs> well, don't yeah, this Caesar. is the preface. Okay? You know, yeah, we down. we we may
0: have to we may have to do this in two shows because yeah. the information is is, is so important. Mm-hmm. But in any event, I'm going to be writing about some of the different people who have found problems with Gregory of Tours. Uh, for example, the names of towns, bridges that didn't exist or did exist or should have existed, the use of the word patriarch and so forth, there is sufficient number of bits of evidence that Gregory of Tours, who gave the Carolingians legitimacy and who then uh, gave legitimacy to the Pope at Rome, which then imposed Christianity on the whole Western world was based on a huge freaking fraud.
2: Yeah, and the discrepancy that are found in Gregory's of two writing, the use of words, description of uh, places, buildings, events, suggests strongly that Gregory of two writings were probably written around uh, 11, the 11th century AD.
3: Which is, you know, where a suspiciously large number of manuscripts start at.
2: Yeah, it's probably uh, coincide with the time when Western Europe we started to develop. And you had those uh, abbeys, those monks that started to write a history that was highly favorable to their agenda, i.e. legitimizing Christianity, Catholicism, and linking them to St.
1: Peter and uh, to it, Rome. And, it also coincided with the return of a favorable climate. This was the medieval warm period.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So what is striking is that all the Eastern Empire alleged eyewitness accounts dry up completely right at 578 AD, the time that John Malalus is supposed to have died, and do not pick up again until 591. However, if John of Ephesus lived until 588 and was writing his own accounts of events at that time and we suspect that those events include astronomical, atmospheric, and climatic records, in which he was obviously furiously interested by the rest of his chronicle. What happened to those accounts? So, that was, those were the two things that framed my research as I was going along. And then I came to a most interesting thing, a story I backed up and I discovered that the predecessor of Constantine had been an initiate of the Mithraic Mysteries, and so were all his fellow emperors. And I started thinking, wait a minute, he was into the Mithraic Mysteries. He came out of retirement, this is Diocletian, or Diocletian. As it's more correctly pronounced, came out of retirement to try to straighten out the mess that Constantine was making. And he went to some place a little bit south of modern day Austria, and he and his fellow co emperors made a sacrifice to Mithras and left an altar with their names and the time and the purpose engraved on it, which is now in a museum in Vienna. And I said to myself, wait a minute, what's going on here? Because this guy, Diocletian, is a very interesting guy. I'm not going to go into details about that, but that, that's the, this is the thread that I started pulling on that led me to Caesar, interestingly enough, because I said, Mithras, Mithraic mysteries. I started looking into the Mithraic mysteries. And what I wanted to know, first of all, was where did they originate? Where did it come from? And it seems that what we know about them comes from Plutarch, where he says, The power of the pirates had its seat in Cilicia, and at the outset it was venturesome and elusive. But it took on confidence and boldness during the Mithridatic War because it lent itself to the king's service. So he goes on and on and on, talks about these pirates and how they had flutes and stringed instruments and drinking bouts along every coast, seizures of persons in high command, ransoming of captured cities, um, piratical craft, uh, which were not merely furnished for their peculiar work with sturdy crews, uh, but they had extravagant gilded sails, purple awnings, and silvered oars, as if they rioted in their iniquity and plumed themselves upon it. Uh, So it goes on and how the power extended over the whole of the Mediterranean Sea. And I'm going through my notes here. And then Pompey was designated as the person to get rid of the pirates. So the reason we know that the pirates were the first mention of the Mysteries of Mithras is because Plutarch tells us so. And he said that they had forts and strong citadels in the Taurus Mountains, and so on and so forth. So I thought this was really strange, that pirates that were put in order by Pompey were described in these terms. Because if you then go and read Plutarch's description of Julius Caesar or his history or story of Julius Caesar, and then his stories of Mark Anthony, you will discover that the stories of these revels and flutes and music and actors and silver doors and purple awnings and golden sails and all this kind of stuff are the exact same words that he uses word for word to describe the activities of Caesar and Mark Anthony in relation to Cleopatra, curiously. And then you also find that all of this stuff goes on in Cilicia, which is what got me going on, you know, what else was going on in Cilicia, and that's what led me to the study of Stoicism, which was included in the last volume.
3: And I it was mentioned a- something important. Hmm? What? But uh, Caesar was kidnapped by Silesian pirates. Yes, Caesar supposedly. also
0: was kidnapped by Silesian pirates while he was on his way to Rhodes to study rhetoric at the same time that the great uh, Stoic philosopher Posidonius was in residence and teaching there. Also, it is said that Pompey knew Posidonius. So, you know, I, and, and okay, you guys messed me up, actually, because I've got to explain how... This comes about because I had to study Mithraism, and it was in the in the study of Mithraism that I came across the fact that Mithraism was pretty much something that was reserved for men, and it was spread by the Roman armies because everywhere the Roman armies had camps, there were Mithraeum. And even their structure, the structure of the the structure of the societies were
1: along the lines of Roman military structure, or so they, so some people say.
0: Yeah, so what happened was the people who study the Mithraic Mysteries finally came out with the idea that the figures, the Mithraic Mysteries, instead of having like, you know, Jesus on the cross or, uh, you know, some mandala or something as their central feature, have what's called a toroctony. It's a scene where a man is who is dressed in a very specific way, is killing a bull that has several specific symbols on it. And these symbols are always the same in every Mithraeum. So along came a guy, a German scholar named K.B. Stark, and said that, The figures in the Tauroctony, which is this scene, represented not characters out of Iranian mythology, but rather a series of stars and constellations. The Mithraic Tauroctony was not a pictorial representation of an Iranian myth, as Kumant and his followers claimed it was, but a star map. Stark's theory was based on the simple fact that the figures which accompany Mithras and the Tauroctony, the bull, the scorpion, dog, snake, raven, lion, and cup, Everyone possesses a parallel among the constellations, in particular a group of constellations which are all visible together at certain moments during the year. The bull is Taurus, the scorpion Scorpio, the dog Canis Major, the snake Hydra, the raven Corvus, the lion Leo, the cub Crater. In addition, the star Spica, the wheat ear, the brightest star in Virgo, parallels the ears of wheat which are often shown in the Toroctony growing out of the tip of the bull's tail. These parallels, argued Stark, cannot be coincidental, and the Mithraic toroctony must have been created in order to represent a group of constellations. So a lot of study goes on, and then somebody comes up with uh, the idea that these represent the constellations along the celestial equator, not the ecliptic. And there are also two figures that are always included in the scenes. There's uh, a man on the one side with a torch up and another guy on the other side with the torch down. So it was figured out that this meant the uh, equinoxes. So in other words, it was a star map that was taken at a certain point in time because the equinox, the equino- equinoctial positions can date it. So uh, there's, you know, I'm not going to go into the discussion of the uh, the ancient... Nature of this Mithraic mystery because there are things in it that relate to comets and so on and so forth. And we have uh, seven grades of initiation in the Mithraic Mysteries. You have one called the Raven, which is ruled by Mercury, one called the Nymphus, which is ruled by Venus, Mylas, the soldier, which is ruled by Mars, and they have all symbols, beaker, lamp, veil, veil, diadem, etc., etc. One called the lion, which is ruled by Jupiter. And finally, uh, skipping through the rest of them, you have one called the pater, or father, which is ruled by Saturn. So Plutarch says that the origin of Mithraism was Cilician pirates encountered by the Roman general Pompey in 67 B.C., He says that these pirates offered strange rites of their own at Olympus and celebrated there certain secret rites among which those of Mithras continue to the present time, having been first instituted by them. So how would a bunch of Salesian pirates know anything about astronomy? And that was the question. And I went through, and I'm not going to give you all the details, but the fact is that the person who discovered the uh precession of the equinoxes and the fact that you can date things was very closely associated with the Stoics and then, as I chronicled in the previous volume of Secret History, you can follow that whole uh history and see that thread running through there, this this idea of precession of the equinoxes, uh, cycles of history, uh, divine fire, uh, cyclical catastrophes related to uh, the behavior of princes or politicians in relation to their people, that that's, you know, a very strong thread. So that is what I was looking at, and I even found a date because... Uh, let me give you the date, because Ulancy, David Ulansi wrote a really interesting book about this, and I would highly recommend his books. So you may want to review the material in the previous volume, Secret History, uh, where I discuss Bailey, club Napier, examination of how the accurate astronomical knowledge of the ancients was degraded and reinterpreted by the various Greek philosophical schools, that emerged following the Dark Ages. Uh, as I wrote there, the beginning of the Greek civilization began after a period of global stress and disruption due to cometary bombardment that brought the Bronze Age world to an end. And you have to keep in mind that the Taurids are called that because they appear to come from the constellation Taurus. And in some time in the past, what came from that constellation may have been far larger and more dramatic than the meteor streams that in our modern times seem so benign and decorative. Three or four thousand years ago, the objects emanating from Taurus were not so small and benign. Enormous, brilliant celestial objects would have been seen traveling along the zodiac with attendant fragments, looking like a shepherd with his little fluffy sheep. Backtracking still further tells us that the giant comet came tens of thousands of years ago and its initial appearance may have started the last ice age, etc., etc. So... uh. In the previous discussion I followed the line of Greek philosophers and you know, following the Ionian school and Axagoras, and it was Anaxagoras who claimed that the sun and moon were earthly bodies, and so on and so forth. But anyhow, I brought this this study of philosophers down to Posidonius, and it's with Posidonius that we connect with Julius Caesar, and it's with Julius Caesar's army and his conquest of Gaul and his travels up along the Rhine River and and in Germany and so on, where you find these Mithraea. In other words, Julius Caesar's soldiers probably were initiates in the Mithraic Mysteries, and it's probable even that Julius Caesar himself was a high initiate, and I think I'm going to make some efforts to uh, provide some coincidental uh, circumstantial evidence that this may have been the case. And I think that the story of Julius Caesar having been captured by these pirates uh, in the way that it's described is just as much a uh, red herring as the story of the pirates described in the exact same terms as Anthony and Cleopatra, and Caesar and Cleopatra, and all of the other individuals. Because as it happens, there was a Mithraeum that was discovered fairly recently under the palace of Caesar's, Julius Caesar's heir, Augustus Caesar, in Rome. Mm. So there is some pretty strong evidence that this is one of the things that Julius Caesar and his army were into, and one of the things that kept Julius Caesar and his army so tightly bound with one another. And this is, and there are uh, strong hints and indications that uh if it had not been for Constantine, Mithraism would have been the religion of the empire. And Diocletian, of course, was an initiate of Mithraism. And I suspect that the assassination of Julius Caesar and the honoring of Julius Caesar was combined with the Mithraic Mysteries and the principles and ideas of the Stoics. And it is from that a combination that Christianity emerged. And in fact, so anyway, this is what I came to think. And I started talking about it here in the house. And I said, you know, I feel a little crazy because I started reading all of this stuff about Julius Caesar. And the more I read, the more I realized that the life of Julius Caesar, his life is almost identical sequentially and in terms of events as the life of the so called Jesus Christ.
3: Well at least the last last you know years.
0: Well no no I'm saying even his birth. I mean old, yeah. uh, oh, yeah, we've birth. got this uh, handy little book that uh you know some research was done that shows that probably Julius Caesar was called was born at a place called Bovilla, not exactly in Rome and Bovilla is like the place of the ox. You know, at the very least it is the place where his family origins were located. And so and then at a certain point in time when he started his civil war, Julius Caesar replaced the standards of his army with images of the bull. He got rid of the Roman eagle and he put the bull up. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. And along along his life he sacrificed bulls several times. He wrote a book about astronomy as well. Even during his uh, funerals, the way his body was cremated is quite peculiar. There was this big...
0: No, I don't know. There's this way. We're going to yeah. do the
1: funeral. We're going to do the funeral. In terms of... I could give you a a, a, give me a broad overview of, of yeah. Judas Caesar's life in five sentences. Okay. Of what he... You know, what you could sum it up as. Give us the overview. The, He's a great and just man who astounds his age by instituting a comprehensive policy of forgiveness. On the verge of becoming the king, he is betrayed and murdered by those he had saved, the treachery epitomized by his turncoat friend. When his tribulation begins, his close friend and religious deputy, sworn to protect him, flees in fear and disguises himself. (laughs) The murdered man's ultimate triumph is being resurrected as a god. And then his betrayer commits suicide. That's the general outline of Caesar's life. And hang on a minute, I've, I've
3: heard, heard that, that before. Sound. Oh my god! Yeah. And where? Damn, where is that? The whole
2: structure of the life. You have. A, we don't talk about Jesus or Caesar specifically, but imagine a character, a human being, that is born from a very famous lineage, but born in a poor family, who starts a quest. To defy the ruling elites, to reduce oppression, to serve people who perform miraculous deeds, who will be betrayed, who will be killed, and who will resurrect. The structure of the life of Jesus Christ follows the script, but also, which is not so known so well known, the structure of the life of Judas Caesar exactly follow this path, because one of the problems is... <clears throat> Go ahead. Go ahead.
1: Yeah. That's why that's why I just read out, basically, uh, you know... Oh. One of but the problems mean... of
2: uh, official history is that it depicts Julius Caesar as a bloody despot, as someone who killed millions and millions of people, someone who spent his life waging war. But actually, when you look at the details of the life of Julius Caesar, you realize that <clears throat> the main value he defended all along his life and the sole objective he was pursuing all along his life was to establish a, a new world where people would be treated justly, and the values he was serving were, above all, about his own life, it was honor and mercy, Clement, systematically.
3: Clementia yeah, Cesar. Clement, yeah, Cesar. I mean on the opening page of Suetonius' biography of uh, his the twelve Caesars or whatever it is, the first thing he says about um Caesar is his refusal to divorce Cornelia at the request of Sola. He defies Sola, who he hates anyway because Sola, you know, has you know, killed and, and murdered all these people. Sola was the dictator that everyone claimed that, that Caesar was, obviously. And him fleeing and hiding in caves to escape him, um, and you know that's how the story of Caesar starts. It's like one of the first things that you learn about yeah. Caesar is when he's, he's probably about, about eighteen at this point or something eighteen nineteen. He's very eighteen. Young. He's eighteen at this point. From that time on, this is where we get the story, and it's, it's it's one story of him another one story after another of him resisting the established authorities, the dictators of the time, the corrupt aristocracy. I mean, people, when they talk about the Roman Senate, Senate, it's not like a Senate today. Back then, it was basically an oligarchy. It was an oligarchy of aristocrats. They were all well, noble. I beg to differ about it being different from yeah. <laughs> today. Yeah, yeah. It was actually Why, exactly like it is today. Well, no, I mean, these people were all like, you know, descended from noble families and their, their right to rule and their position in the Senate was dictated pretty much by the fact that they were patrician families, that they were you know, these sort of noble people.
2: I think the, the big difference between uh, Caesar's time and today is not really the Senate, that is quite the same, but just today there's no more Caesar. But right? this being said, what is difficult to reconcile is that how Caesar, who killed a million people from his own account, uh, he says so, how can he be this model of mercy? And to understand that, we have to uh, understand the context and uh, what happened before Caesar. And until Caesar, all winners had all the rights on the one who had lost, and they were exercising systematically this right. It means the one who lost were being killed, raped, tortured, including the the various, the children, the family, the wives. Everything was destroyed. And for the first time in history, you had a man with tremendous power, tremendous legions, who showed mercy again and again. And again,
3: in every single case, and
2: most of the time he was being betrayed, and in some cases, even showed mercy twice. He was betrayed and he, he showed mercy again to the one who had already betrayed him. It was a revolution, really.
3: It was a total, total, total philosophical and and even somewhat spiritual revolution with the Caesar. And uh, the, the Gallic Wars did not take place in a vacuum, it wasn't like he walked into Gaul. Everything was completely hunky-dory. People were just flapping around, throwing flowers around, free love everywhere, and he just started cutting people up. That's not what happened. That's not what goal was like at that time. So this whole he killed a million people, he went in there, and in almost every single engagement and every single time, he said, don't do that. And then they did it. And then he said, if you do that, I'm going to stop you, and he always gave them a chance to surrender and then when he had won if they surrendered he showed them clemency and most of the time it was like don't do it again and then they would get together again and do it so it wasn't this it didn't take place in a vacuum so that's one thing that you know people say oh he killed a million people in this gigantic campaign but that wasn't taking place in a vacuum
0: well let me let me just say that as i went deeper into the study of julius caesar looking for any kind of evidence that he could possibly have been an initiate of the mysteries of mithras I came across the book of uh, Stephen uh, Stefan Weinstock called Divus Julius, and it's there where he chronicles the life of Julius Caesar with the epigraphic, numismatic, and uh, monumental evidence. Numismatic mean coins. Yeah, that gave me the realization that... The the life I mean from the time he crossed the Rubicon until he had his triumphal entry into uh, into Rome, every single thing he did, uh, and even including his birth and his upbringing and his introduction of the concepts of mercy and so on and so forth, you know, just reminded me of of you know I kept thinking my God, you know this that sounds like Jesus Christ and and when the author Stephen Weinstock when he talks about uh, how when Caesar was approaching Rome, how all of the people came out from all the countryside and all the towns and villages, and they lined the way that he was traveling, and they threw flowers at him and and branches in the roadway, hail Caesar, hail Caesar, hail Caesar. I mean, it was just like the whole triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And of course we all know that, you know, just a few days after his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, you know, Jesus was brought up on trial and supposedly crucified and betrayed and crucified. Well, you know, it took a little longer for Caesar, but there were there were other things involved there. But anyway, Weinstock <coughs> makes a remark, he says, Well, there is um there is other precedent for this type of event, you know, this triumphal entry. And it's uh, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Well, supposedly Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem that followed this same model was like... uh you know, 60 years or 60, almost 100 yeah, 60 years, years later. later. Mm-hmm. And that's it's not a precedent. It came afterwards. Yeah, it came after. So the answer to our question at the beginning of the show,
1: although we're not going to finish here necessarily, but the answer to our question at the beginning of the show, who was on first? Well, the historical record shows that Caesar was on first.
0: He was yeah. always first. All all you, all you
1: need to, uh, he was officially first.
0: Everything that was uh, supposedly assigned to Jesus is, you know, went, in, in philosophical terms or yeah. whatever, uh, You know, Jesus, uh, Caesar did it first.
1: Yeah, so people aren't... The problem is that people aren't aware of these details of Caesar's life. Uh, they've been kind of whitewashed or overlooked, and they're not being And if you really watch movies
0: about Caesar, I mean, they depict him like some kind of power-mad, yeah. uh, ambitious. And, and the thing was, if you read carefully and you read the sources, you see – and remember, all the sources – Writing about Caesar were hostile sources. Mm-hmm. they were members of the ruling elite, the oligarchy, and he came in and messed up their sandbox mm-hmm. and took their toys away, gave land to the uh, to the soldiers, gave land to the poor people uh in his will, he left a bequest to every single resident of Rome for crying all night mm-hmm. I, and he reinsus. Yeah, so it just, it isn't. anyway, it started making me feel a little crazy to be thinking this. You know, I mean, Jesus Christ with mm-hmm. Caesar. And I started talking about it a little bit, and I started, you know, reading the excerpts and saying, that's just like Jesus, that's just like Jesus. And I would bring them down. I'd come down to breakfast with the, my latest research, and I'd say, you know, this is just freaking me out. It's freaking me out completely because it was not something that I ever expected to find. And then uh, I talked about it a little bit when we were uh, traveling a month or so ago with uh, some members of our research forum. And even at that point, you know, I was still feeling a little crazy. I was just kind of trying it out to see, you know, does this sound all that crazy? And then it was, uh, oh, not too long ago that uh, Pierre decided to see if anybody else had ever thought of this. So he put, uh, you know, put some kind of text in uh in Google and searched and he discovered this interesting guy Francesco Carada. Well, Francesco Carada has the whole thing worked out and he's you know as far as I'm concerned with his uh uh evidence based on how the texts were morphed and how they changed over time uh it's clear that the gospel stories <laughs> at least the earliest gospel story the book of Mark is about Julius Caesar. And it's clear how the, uh, how the text emendations were made, or the, or the copying errors, or the changes, or how they used abbreviations, and so forth. And maybe Pierre wants to give us a quick rundown on that, because you know I felt a little less crazy to know that I wasn't the first person who had thought of this.
2: Yeah, basically, Carota
0: <clears throat> compared uh,
2: mostly the first gospel, Mark, to the life of Julius Caesar. And he discovered that for not some point, not most of the point, but for every point, the structure, the requisite, i.e. the content, and in most cases the name, were the same. Apart from concerning the name, apart from some translation mistakes. Uh, Just one example. The beginning of the journey of Caesar, hitting Ravenna and marching towards Rome to bring peace, marching towards the, the Senate, or in parallel, uh, Jesus from Nazarea and uh, crossing the Jordan, etc., the beginning of their journey. Bo- so on the one side you have Julius Caesar. On the other side you have uh, Jesus Christ. Julius, Jesus. Julius was called Pontifex Maximus. He was a high priest. But in, uh, in Greek it's Arches, Megistos Christos, Christos. So you have Julius Caesar, Jesus Christus. They both come from a, a land, Ravenna, Nazarea, a, a city, a town. From a land, Galia, Gaul, uh, in Latin, for Caesar, Galilea, for Jesus Christ. They both cross a river, the Rubicon, the Red River and the Jordan that goes in the Red Sea. They both go to a land, Ionia, I mean Italy in uh, Latin, and Judea, um, uh, Judea. They both reach a first town. Curfinum for Caesar, Cafanaum for Jesus. Okay, there are about 700 pages in his book now, 500 pages, and there are all the points, basically, all the miracles, all the characters, all the structure are so similar that it cannot be due to coincidence. Basically, the Bible and the New Testament, the Gospels, are very close adaptation inspired or copied from Julius Caesar's life
3: yeah. but don't think that
1: the similarities are just those i mean like no.
0: oh, there's many many more
1: the problem is that anybody just looking at it objectively you have all of this historical evidence for Julius Caesar his life the details of his life what he did and he was he did it first and then you have this person called Jesus Christ for whom there is no historical evidence uh, and no evidence that he did any of the things, but all the things that he did exactly mirror or, you know, very closely mirror what Julius Caesar is known to have done.
3: And so you have this situation. And not
1: only that, but the details in the Gospels of Jesus' life are all completely contradictory and make no sense whatsoever. So just look at it from that point of view and you say, well, the second one that came along afterwards has got to be just a made up piece of bullshit that somebody copied from the life of Julius Caesar that we know actually happened.
0: Well, the thing is, is what I think happened is uh, when you, you know, because for me the the most profoundly moving part of the story of Julius Caesar is the story of his funeral, which is, as it turns out, uh, the exact model on which the so-called Passion of Christ has been uh, created.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: It follows exactly. I mean, even to the uh, image of the wax image of Julius being raised up on a cross-like object so that all of the people who are listening to Mark Anthony's funeral oration can see it. And him holding up Caesar's robe at the point of a spear so that they can see the robe he was wearing when he was assassinated with all of the holes and the blood on it,
2: you know? Uh, here but,
0: maybe but, we can add a,
2: a detail because most biographies, most stories about Caesar relate History from his birth, or from eight, uh, when he was about 18 years old, to his death. And you too, Brutus, the assassination. And after, there's less sources. But if you read the sources that deal with the funeral of Caesar, you discover that so Caesar was killed. All the Senate flew away, ran away. Then the body was carried by three servants to, uh, to his wife, Calpurnia. Then there was a ceremony that was organized in the Forum. And during this ceremony, there was a cross that was raised and uh, called a Chopium. And on this cross, you had an effigy, a figure of Caesar, walks, figure, figure of Caesar exhibiting all these wounds, showing what the person, Julius Caesar, was already considered as a god by the Roman citizen, how he had been uh, killed. So, so you have a betrayal, Brutus, you have an assassination, and you have a resurrection. You have the same structure and a, you have the, the a rebirth, the rebirth of a of a god.
0: And not only that, but apparently <clears throat> according to the contemporaneous account of Virgil, the poet, uh the signs in the heaven and the events that uh were supposedly attached to the death of Jesus Christ actually were attached first to the death of Julius Caesar he writes the sun will give you signs who dare say the sun is false he and no other warns us when dark uprisings threaten when treachery and hidden wars are gathering strength he and no other was moved to pity Rome on the day that Caesar died, when he veiled his radiance in gloom and darkness, and a godless age feared everlasting night. In this hour, earth also, and the plains of ocean, ill boding dogs and birds that spell mischief, sent signs which heralded disaster. How oft before our eyes did Etna deluge the fields of the Cyclops with a torrent from her burst furnaces hurling thereon balls of fire and molten rocks. Germany heard the noise of battle sweep across the sky, and, event without precedent, the Alps rocked with earthquakes. A voice boomed through the silent groves for all to hear, a deafening sound, and phantoms of unearthly pallor were seen in the falling darkness. Horror beyond words, Rivers stood still, the earth gaped open, and the temples ivory images wept for grief, and beads of sweat covered bronze statues. King of waterways, the Po swept whole forests along in the swirl of his frenzied current, carrying with him over the plain cattle and stalls alike. Nor in that same hour did sinister filaments cease to appear in ominous entrails or blood to flow from wells or our hillside towns to echo all night long with the howl of wolves. Never fell more lightning from a cloudless sky. Never was comet's alarming glare so often seen.
2: Yeah, the and maybe we can mention at this point the uh, Caesar's comet. Caesar was assassinated on the fifteenth of March. And interestingly that's on the fifteenth of March that uh, Jesus Christ or 15th of fifteenth of Nissan nice that Jesus Christ uh, was killed as well, according to, to the Gospel. <coughs> so on the, in 44 BC, July, three months after the assassination, in July during the, the month when Caesar was born, were organized for the first time games in honor of Caesar. Of Caesar. And during those games, end of July, between the 20th and the 30th of July, 44 BC, during those games, for seven days in a row, a comet was seen high in the sky, and this comet is not exaggeration, it's not uh, imagination, it was uh, observed all around the world by Chinese observers in particular, and this comet, the magnitude was minus four, it was as bright as half moon, it was the brightest comet ever observed in recorded history.
0: So there is, all of the elements are there together, and uh, there's another little book that I think is really brilliant. It's called Et Tu Judas, Then Fall Jesus by Gary Courtney. It seems that somebody else had the same idea just slightly before, well, he didn't have the idea before Karata, but he published before Karata because his book was published first in 1992, and I believe that Karata was still working on his Manuscript at that time. In any event, uh, the scary Courtney has written a brilliant little book. I mean, probably one of the best condensations of the uh, mountains of biblical research mm-hmm. that I have read over the years. Uh, the authentic work mm-hmm. ever seen. I mean, it's just—it's really brilliant. He's written it for the lay audience. It's not even a very big book. It's only uh,
2: 162. Yeah,
0: 162 pages but he condenses uh, biblical research into that 162 pages and makes the case.
1: Yeah, you won't, makes be, the case. you won't be able to read that book and ever believe that the Gospels are anything other than a
3: fabrication, <laughs> Shoddy fabrication. Well, it's, the thing
0: is, is let's, let's be clear, it's not a fabrication, because the story of Jesus is really the story of Julius Caesar. Yeah. And there were textual mistakes, translation errors that Carrada has d- documented, to show how the transition was made and my thought is because of the uh the wild outpouring of grief that fell upon Rome during Caesar's funeral uh this this tremendous event this passion play that was staged the first time when he was actually lying there dead in his uh on his funeral bier before they cremated his body That the soldiers of Caesar, the tens and twenties of thousands of soldiers who loved Caesar, who were then at that time and had been for several years, were being resettled all over the empire by being given land and founding towns and colonies, which was Caesar's gift to his army, which was the thing that Caesar had fought for all his life, was to be able to give land to people. Who deserved it, who people who were hardworking, who pe- people who fought for the empire, to the poor, the dispossessed, that these soldiers, these people, most of whom were also initiates in the Mithraic mysteries, took the Passion of Jesus and turned it into a Passion play mm-hmm. that they then performed or commemorated every year. Or as often as was necessary, maybe they included it with all of their Mithraic uh, gatherings, you know, all over the empire. And at some point, somebody wrote down the whole sequence, and that became the uh, foundation for the Book of Mark. It was a passion play. This explains perfectly, as uh, Gary Courtney points out. This explains perfectly why it is written that way, why it sounds so strange and disjointed, and why there are these leaps. It's because each part of the Gospel of Mark is a scene that's being played in a passion play. And that and, then, uh, over time. Uh, then in,
1: obviously, that the original Mithraic myth, enactment of that play would not have been the same as.
0: No, yeah, well. As, uh, uh, it was
1: twisted and turned into the Gospels.
0: Well, kind well of. we of don't know that the... the well, well, what I'm saying is, is that this is what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Okay, there was a large contingent of Jews uh, present at the funeral of Caesar, and mm-hmm. the uh, the historians note, I mean, Plutarch and Appian, note that the Jews cried the longest. They came back night after mm-hmm. night to the place where the body had been burned, mourning mm-hmm. Caesar, and the reason was Caesar had made many, many laws and uh, had been very kind to the Jews, very benevolent to them, had given them uh, their own rulership, had exempt, made them,
1: citizens made them gave them
0: citizenship, exempted them from uh, all kinds of uh, onerous uh, treatment.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And basically, I would say that there were many members of his army or of other armies who were Jewish. Uh, who were also initiates of the Mithraic mysteries? Because I don't, I, you have to understand, a mystery school was more like kind of a man's club, and they had certain other things going on, which I'm going to get into in my next volume. But I think that they used the example of Caesar, they recreated the passion of Caesar, how he was betrayed and died and used Caesar as their model for behavior. He was a, he was not a wimpy guy who just came along and said, oh, turn the other cheek and uh, uh, there's a better world waiting for the meek and that sort of thing. He was uh, a powerful person who actually did things to right wrongs and make things right for other people. Mm-hmm. So they were engaged in this activity and they were engaged in it even in Judea. And I would say that it was this activity, this combination of Mithraic mysteries, some Stoic things, uh, a militant Judaism itself, mm-hmm. that turned into the Jewish resistance movement against Rome. Mm-hmm. And this came about during the Flavian period. Mm-hmm. And the Flavians then, prob- or after the time of the Flavians, then there were additional Gospels that were created and reworked using material from Josephus, mm-hmm. Uh, twisting and distorting things, adding stuff, adding some philosophy, adding this, adding the other thing. Names were changed. And even the names of the rebel leaders that are mentioned in Josephus' uh, Wars of the Jews become disciples of this Jesus of Nazareth. So they,
4: mm-hmm. the
0: Flavians put the whole set of events back to 30 uh, A.D., gave the individual in name, Jesus, mm-hmm. Jesus Christ... And it's probable that Julius Caesar himself was called Christ in all of these passion plays up to this time right. anyway. So they were able to slide this in well, without w- anybody really noticing anything. Well, I
3: would point out that th- there's a precedent. When, when Romulus was named a God, his name was changed. He was given a different name. They didn't refer to him as Romulus anymore. It was Cerenus. <laughs> yeah, so
0: but it was it so was normal for
3: Caesar to be called. What, they wouldn't call I, him Julius Caesar. But they would have called him something else. And what you are saying is that the Jews...
1: Then, as the as the New Testament of the Gospels were written, the Jews who who were very uh, who supported Caesar and, and and essentially loved him because of what he had done, with them, they, it was turned around. And it obviously, as it come down to us, as it comes down to us today, it's the Jews that called for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Well,
0: the, the Flavians, of course, turned it around them because they had this big problem. They had mm-hmm. these Judean rebels. The they zealots. had they had uh, Zealots the Sicarii, et cetera, et cetera. And these individuals, you know, they had to control them because, I mean, they went in there and, you know, destroyed Jerusalem to, you know, to stop this. Because these these absolutely, they were being trained by the example of Caesar. Caesar was absolutely, utterly inflexible in his will. He cared nothing for his body. He exposed himself to danger. He never submitted himself to evil authorities, and I think that they were using the example of Julius Caesar in their uh, in their Christology, in their passion plays, and that this was the cohesiveness that gave these Judean rebels, you know, their oomph that made them able to uh, launch their rebellion mm-hmm. and to stand against uh, the Romans, the, you know, the later Roman emperors that came after Caesar and after the uh, the Julio Claudian line mm-hmm. you know, ceased to exist. So the Flavians had you know, or somebody after them had to edit these texts to use them to pacify people. Because they could see that if they allowed this worship of Julius Caesar Mm -hmm. to continue, this was dangerous. This had to be fixed. It had to be edited. Uh, This Julius Caesar, this passion play, everything. He had to be killed on a cross and he had to be killed by Jews because, of course, they needed to turn the hatred of the empire against the Jews also because they didn't want them setting an example for other people to rise up against, you know, the controlling rulers of the Absolutely. time. Absolutely. An example is interesting. And yeah. we
2: knew almost nothing about Jesus, but something that was sure is that he was a descendant of David. His Jewish identity was one of the only things that was certain in this new narrative. So basically you had a very inspiring Judas cult. It's a, it's testified, it's shown in Ephesus, in Antioch, in uh, Alexandria, in Philippi, you have what was called the Caesare, temples dedicated to Caesar. But actually it was more than that. Caesar was not one more god. Caesar, unlike all, unlike all the other gods, had his statues in every single temple, Jupiter temple, Dian temple, Venus temple. He, the level of charisma, of uh, integrity, of honor, of mercy, he showed it his life, and every instant inspired people so much that Caesar instilled, created monotheism. And from his death, 44 BC, to around 80 AD, you have the development of this new Caesar cult. It's growing big, and you have nothing about Christianity. And around 80 AD, during the Flavian, Titus and uh, uh, Vespasian, 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 and uh, Domitian. Do, Domitianus, you suddenly have a sudden end of this huge Judas Caesar cult and the emergence from nothing of, of the
0: Christian
2: movement. The first mention of Christianity, of Jesus Christ, Nazarene, uh, it goes back to authentic, goes back to... Uh, The historian of the Flavian, i.e. Josephus, Flavius Josephus, is the first one to mention it. And this historian, Josephus, was the official historian of the Flavian, and he started to write. All his work is about legitimizing the Jewish population, and he started writing about this Jesus Christ right after the Jewish wars. Yeah, but that
1: that's because the, Jew, the Jews the were demonized.
0: Yeah. And
2: in the and in the, yeah. In the yeah.
0: yeah, and then and then the first pope the very first pope supposedly after Peter, Peter who by the way as uh as this other guy, you know, I, I really don't like this guy. What's his where's that book? Atkins at will. At will. At will. will. Where'd at- will go? We didn't bring it no. in. There it is. Oh, here's At will. At will. Atwell writes a book called Caesar's Messiah, The Roman Conspiracy to Invent Jesus. Well, he's got some points. The guy is a real sick puppy because, you know, he he says some things that are absolutely outrageous, but he does notice some things that are very, very damn peculiar, which is correspondences between the Gospel stories, particularly between the Gospel of Matthew and the works of Josephus. So it's almost as though... Either somebody was writing this gospel based on Josephus or Josephus himself was editing an already existing gospel to make it say what the Flavians wanted it to say. And the whole thing was, of course, you know, you've got to get rid of Julius Caesar. You've got to change the name. You've got to change the location. You've got to change these battles, these miraculous battles that Caesar won by sheer freaking force of will you've got to change them to miracles.
3: I mean, you know,
0: miracles. And it's if weak
3: sauce miracles and there's
0: really weak sauce miracles because if you if you if you map Caesar's battles and you map Jesus miracles uh, along with the travels, you will see that his miracles exactly correspond to Caesar's battles and in some cases, you know, even the wordplay is identical. Like obsessus
3: yeah. for possessed versus
0: siege and, and there was
2: Two major changes I noticed between the Caesar cult and the gospels: A, the identity of the Messiah who became Jew, Jewish, and B the paradigm, the, the way of seeing life. Caesar was promising and implementing a paradise on earth for people he was serving people, he was doing it really and he was achieving major success that's why he got killed on the other side, the gospel side you had the creation of this paradise in heaven that pushed people to accept anything on earth to actually accept hell on earth domination, extortion, despotism to access eventually, possibly this hypothetical paradise in heaven. So,
0: in other the, words, accept the rule of your dominating oligarchy, yeah, and you'll go. But, you'll you'll get to go to heaven if you believe in Jesus. But for God's sakes, do not believe in Julius Caesar and the things that he did, because yeah. that will inspire you to rebel. Well, I, I don't.
1: I don't even think they would have wanted Caesar wouldn't necessarily have wanted anybody to believe in him. No, in he, terms I mean, of a god. Really. I mean, I, I would have. I would have thought that he any lasting well, of course he testimony he would have said would have been, Don't dare find me, follow what I'm trying to say.
0: Yeah, he uh, was you follow my example. But exactly. I'm just saying that if people killed? believed in the example of Julius exactly. Caesar that a man could by his will and his righteousness, because Caesar was an extremely righteous man, when he was ordered to divorce his wife, you know, for political reasons, he refused. He went on the run. He was a young man. He was what, eighteen years old? Yeah. Mm-hmm. He went on the run. You know, Sulla's army was chasing him, hunting him down, and, and they finally, he finally got sick, and he was so sick he couldn't get out of bed, and they found him, and he had to pay them a bribe so they wouldn't kill him.
2: Yeah, and, and that's the final treason, actually, because the main meaning, the main message in Caesar's legacy is standing for higher value, mm. the importance of mercy, of honor of the words you give, of uh, talking economy. the talk, walking the walk. This, this example, this highly inspiring example, was expurged from all those values and replaced with uh, Jesus
3: Christ, as we know, as Christians. As Chris, Chris. I mean, yeah,
0: just go just meekly to your crucifixion, then you'll rise again and go to heaven.
3: Mm-hmm. Just understand how, how awesome this dude was. Back in that day, he, he fought over 300 battles. 302 battles. 302 battles. He lost two. And did lose-lose. He, didn't
2: lost, lose, lose. he uh, had to where? retreat from two. He lost one in the yeah. He yeah. lost about uh, 900 uh, uh, men. Yeah. And that was uh,
4: and a he major source
2: of grief. And he lost one in uh, Alexandria. It's one of the miracles, actually, mm-hmm. where uh, he was swimming for miles, hanging one arm up to save some scrolls, some manuscripts. And uh, so he lost twice. But what you have to keep in mind is that for the, all the other battles, the 300 other battles he won and most of the time he was outnumbered yeah so the 300 battles he won
3: were miracles. a lot of
2: them were miracles but really miracles it's not about changing water in wine or uh, yeah. creating fishes no it was uh, and uh, another stunning thing about Caesar we've been talking about his moral values there's also the intellect this
0: it's brilliant.
2: Usually you have genius in one field, you know. You have a genius in painting, you have a genius in music, in engineering. Caesar was a genius in engineering, architecture, creativity, tactics, leadership, psychology, politics, writing. And I forget So you want to say. Rhetoric, things, so one thing. On.
3: Julius Caesar <clears throat> invented books, and I am Is not it? choking. The man actually invented the book. And I mean that was that like flabbergasted me. He, he did all of that stuff. and he had time to invent books. Not that he just wrote them. He invented them and then wrote them.
2: Yeah. Well, and actually the gospels were sti- systematically written on codex. Yeah. On books. books Why? Though at the time, most of the writings were done on other supports. And so that's another peculiar they, coincidence.
0: Yeah. So. <coughs> Christians really are the people of the book and yeah. it depends on who you see as Christ and if you really understand that Julius Caesar was Christ it gives a whole new meaning to being a Christian and it gives it actually a value that it never had before the the is,
1: we could think that uh, the, strange, the strange thing is that uh, the, the, the ideas or the ideology of Julius Caesar is in Christianity, but the, kind of, the well, the militant aspect of it, i.e., impose if you have to by force of arms, you need to impose this benevolence and clemency and stuff on the country you live in, and if you therefore if you see a corrupt elite, you got to get rid of them. So the, the militant aspect of it, i.e., the people are required to follow the example of Julius Caesar, which was to create as much as possible peace on earth. And if you see it not being, if you see it being subverted, corrupted by an elite, you've got to do something about it, you know. But that part was taken out of it, and the whole reward was, like Pierre was saying, projected into heaven. Afterwards, just live a quiet, peaceful, good Christian life. A good Christian is someone who, who doesn't abide Submit. corruption amongst the elite.
3: I hear one thing. I can't remember where I read it, um, but uh, one of the one of the things that, that Julius Caesar did. Was uh, after he got back into Rome after the civil war, he would have host these gigantic, massive feasts, feeding all the people with like twenty thousand couches or something like that. I mean, he's he beats Jesus to beats the pants off Jesus with the feeding of the masses. Yeah, we'll talk about live I mean, and, and there's, there's all these kinds of like parallels between what he did and what Jesus did, but he always did it to be quite honest, better. I mean, Jesus has a handful of miracles, like kind of like a little bit suspicious. He, you know, he exercised some person here, he healed somebody here, got rid of leprosy here. And, you know, Julius Caesar just spent his entire life giving massive, passing legislation to give massive tracts of land to the poor and disenfranchised. Feeding um, people. Feeding people. Making Um, people citizens so they had rights. Yeah, that was one of the things, you know, when normal, when, when someone would go into Gaul or whatever and conquer, they'd conquer, enslave all the people, take all the booty, where he would go there and then he would, you know, give them autonomy or give them citizenship and you
1: know. you know i just said the word the term i used the term that i just made up impose your benevolence impose your benevolence <laughs> so that sounds very strange to people but in a certain sense that's what caesar did and if anybody thinks about today how would you create peace on earth leaving aside any navel gazing or imagining or meditating on it if you were to do it try to do it in a practical way and you're in a position of power to be able to do or to try and impose benevolence on the world like look at around the world where all of the problems are people not living peaceably together, how would you do that? And what kind of what kind of uh, resistance would you come up against by the current by, by the current elite? And how, where would that end up? Would you not have to if you found yourself in that position and had to follow that path and decided it was your mission to follow that path, or you were empowered to do that, do you not imagine you would end up having to go to war? Against, against people who I mean, I mean in the it's, it's a problem I mean how are you to going to do out. it people want peace on earth how are you going to do it in, a, in the current context today how did Caesar try to do it in the, current con- in the context of his day
0: and his, the context of his day was not that much different from today so I mean uh,
1: if you're in a position of power to, and you're tasked with the job well then you to do it or you don't you to go with what's in front of you or you don't and I mean he tried this full way for yeah. 15 years he
2: tried in the Senate to pass laws that were fair, that were smart, that were just. And everybody agrees with that. Cicero, his nemesis, even wrote so. But systematically, the Senate, the optimates, the oligarchy, was refusing his laws. They knew it was good, but they refused it because they knew also it would give him credit in the eyes of the people. Mm-hmm. So after 15 years, trying the peaceful way, and making major achievements, they were after him. They wanted to impeach him. Yeah. So he saw the only solution to prevent the people from suffering from oligarchy, from despotism, from a a new Sula, from years and years of suffering and death, was to get more political legitimacy in the eyes of the Senate. And from that, he had to get military legitimacy. And that's one of the reasons why. He went through those campaigns. There, there are many other reasons had that are very legitimate. That's one of the reasons. But then because he had to
1: go to war against the Senate itself. After and the civil he war, he knew but, that Pompey yeah, was okay.
3: going to become the next ruler. <clears throat> yeah. like he knew that that was yeah. the way it was going yeah. with Mithridates yeah. the Mithridatic War. Yeah, uh, what
2: I mean is, I think he realized that he had to go through a lot of death, a lot of battles, in order to prevent much more death. And much more suffering to get the power to create a new world order for the all empire Ugh. that will be benevolent oh my God. That the will word. be positive for the people yeah it's negatively caused
3: co- what we're all about here. it's,
2: it's no. negatively
3: connotated but uh, yeah, it's a new world things, order a positive one, one of for the things that was going on i mean the the Roman Empire at the time was the Roman and the citizens were crippled by debt and you know the the lower classes were impoverished and the rich people were super super rich I mean it was most were not citizens. Most, they, most were they, citizens they had the like same business.
0: thing that we have nowadays. They had these vast estates that were owned by the the ultra rich that they had gotten because they would go off to the provinces and rape, pillage, and plunder, and, and to steal the stuff from other people, taxes and stuff. Come back, they get all this land. You know, they'd been using uh, the, the the Italian people for years and years to be soldiers and then they would come back and they would lose their land and, and they would be bought up by the rich people and then and then of course they would bring back tons of slaves from from their conquests to work the land so that the the Italian people didn't have jobs. So they didn't have land. They didn't have jobs. Uh the rich people owned everything. It, you know, it was just it was the equivalent of the corporatocracy <laughs> that we live with today, you know, the big corporations, you know, corporate farming, you know, corporate this, corporate that, you know, cutting out, you know, artisans and, and individual people, family farms and, and it it was exactly the same thing. And then crushing taxes and then you know And well,
2: three of the first laws he managed to get enacted were A the agrarian law where he distributed massive surface of land to families, to poor families. The second law was to grant citizenship to a lot of Roman people who lived in Provence. Because for a long time it was only Ro- Rome families and Rome people who had the citizenship, who had the rights, who had the privilege. And only
0: Rome, families in the city of Rome with a certain amount of money were allowed to be citizens and have and, rights.
2: And the third law was to make consuls representative of the Roman oligarchy accountable to stop those abuses that were happening committed almost systematically by the Roman elite in the province, what Laura described a few minutes ago. So he was really in developing, applying a new model, a new truly social model. And at the core of this model was the respect for people.
3: And right. And, and was... the saddest thing is that Cicero is often credited as being some great orator on the topic of freedom and liberty in the republic, but he was with the optimists and blocking things Mm -hmm. like that. He was against giving the people citizenship. He
0: was an officious twerp. He was the most despicable human being I have ever read about in my entire life. And it's unfortunate that most of, of, of what we know about Julius Caesar comes through Cicero.
2: At the same time, it's a blessing. Since Cicero was an enemy of Caesar, you can be sure that Cicero didn't depict Caesar in a positive light. And despite that, even through Cicero's writing, you can see how exceptional Caesar mm-hmm. was. So, from my personal experience, you know, as you can have, <coughs> as you might have noticed, I have a slight French accent, so I'm from France, uh, unfortunately, and well, uh, no. so I come from Gaul, and the Gallic War uh, to me it equates hurt. Uh, her- one million of my ancestors being killed by Caesar. Well, that's that's a lot. And uh, so I started reading about Caesar with a strong negative bias. And I read and read and read again. And in the end, my conclusion was: this man was, without any doubt, to me, the greatest man that ever lived. That is this simple.
1: Okay. Well, on that note, (coughs) we're going to leave it because we've run over a little bit, and that's not a problem. And we may come back to this topic, or we may not. We don't know, depending on if we develop any more (coughs) thoughts or theories on it. Um, But if not, Bora will be writing about it in the next volume of her series of books. So until then, anybody got anything to say?
0: I just want to recommend that people read Francesco Caradas yeah. Jesus with Caesar and Gary Courtney. Courtney's...
3: uh Et tu Brutus et, et Tu Judas, Judas. Oh, Jesus. then fall Jesus.
0: For yeah. then fall Jesus. Yeah, and also uh there are some oh there's a wonderful a wonderful book about Caesar uh of Caesar politician and statesman by Matthias Gelzer. And then there is—it's uh, going to be hard for you to get *Divus Julius* by Stefan Weinstock. It's a pricey book and it's kind of out of print. But those first three are good enough. But yeah, if you get that, get the Courtney book first. Yeah, get the Courtney book. It's and a really then, good read. And then there's many other good bi—what's that? Uh, what's that biography of Caesar that everybody's been reading? Freeman, by Freeman. 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 Julius Caesar. Julius, Julius by, Caesar by, by Freeman. Phil- Philip Very Freeman. Very good. Very good book. Yeah. I would really encourage people, because if you really want to know, I mean, this is, I mean, if, and I believe it is true, I mean, I am am convinced by the evidence that Julius Caesar was really the Christ, okay? But not in the way people think. Not in the way people think. And for me, it's so exciting to be able to... Have a real biography of a real historical person who was a real example, who really did good things. Who really turns out to be awesome. And who really turns out to be, as Pierre says, the greatest man who ever lived. Not only that, but you can even read his own writings. You can read the Gallic Wars. Now, could you imagine the, I mean, the, basically what I'm saying is you can read the writings of Christ. You can read his own words. You really can. So that's all I wanted to say. Okay.
1: Well, we'll leave it there then. So until next week, uh, thanks to all our listeners. Sorry to our callers. We weren't taking any calls here. We had a number of calls, but we didn't take any. So over and out.